Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to focus on zero trust, a hot topic since President Joe Biden's May 2021 executive order. For today's show, you'll hear an excerpt of a panel sponsored by ATARC that I moderated recently focused on zero trust and its implementation across different agencies. The guests on that panel were Togai Andrews, Chief Information Security Officer at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in the Treasury Department, Donald Coulter, a Senior Science Advisor for Cybersecurity and the Science and Technology Directorate at the Homeland Security Department, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor for the Technology Transformation Service and the Federal Acquisition Service in the General Services Administration, Angel Fanouf, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Army Software Factory, and Fatomi Kalan, the Cybersecurity Evangelist for the Public Sector at Akamai. First, you hear from Togai Andrews from the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. As we kind of tailor out our Zero Trust strategy, uh, our focus right now is on identity and access management, revamping our identity access management program to align with our overall Zero Trust strategy. So for FY23, that's going to be uh, my focus. It's making sure that we can uh, mature that program at an enterprise level and do some automation around the life cycle itself of identity, both the human and non-human identities within our organization. I get my follow-up question. Well, that was a quick three to five minutes. All right. So uh, the follow-up is, is, is obvious to me is, is we've been talking about identity for many years. What's the difference between what you have been doing with identity and access and what you want to do? As shallow IT grew within our organization and kind of shallow business needs, you have multiple source of identity, a source of truth for identity. Um, and the lack of automation around the program itself or the lifecycle management itself um, to driving the need to, to mature in that area, have a single source of, our, of truth for our identity. And as we incorporate robotic process automation within our enterprise, uh, that kind of also drive is driving us to, to really manage the life cycle of non-human identity. So all of those areas are pushing us to kind of broaden our identity access management program and create some automation around the life cycle itself. Maybe some questions from the audience will come around that more. <laughs> Don, take it away uh, from CISA from uh, Science and Technology. My position is a little different than most of the other folks here, so I'm the senior science advisor, so I'm not with the CISO, I'm not trying to solve today's problems. I mean, the, the, the chief technology officers are looking a little ahead, but I'm really uh, looking at, you know, beyond the 5, 10, 15-year uh, mark to really see where are the threats uh, going to be in that time frame and where are those opportunities that we can leverage uh, the advances in technology to, to increase the resilience of our networks. Uh, so a lot of that is, is still in formulation. It's, it's really hard to predict the future uh, that far out. Uh, we have some, so I don't have any breakthroughs or anything to, to share today on how we definitely solved it for, for a decade from now. But I am excited about uh, one of the programs we're working on with, with the Critical Infrastructure uh, Security and Resilience uh, Research Program. Uh, that one is getting underway. And, and one of the interesting areas we're going to continue to look at there is the application of zero trust architectures to legacy ICS and OT uh, type systems. So getting getting a look at spreading that across um, and some of these principles across some of these legacy OT systems uh, is going to be a critical area that, that we're focusing over the next uh, few years here. One thing occurs to me as you talk about 
the ICS and OT. That's one area that we, we don't talk a lot about in the federal government. Are you going down this path because you're getting requests from agencies, from industry? What made you all decide to look at the resiliency side and, and how to apply zero trust? Because oh, we're, we're working uh, very closely with um, CISA, and, and our responsibility there is to protect the critical infrastructure and working across public and private partnerships uh, in that domain. So, and there's so many applications, not, not just within um, CISA and what we protect there, but across the transportation sector, energy sector, and we're partnered with the Department of Energy as well. So there are so many applications, so many different devices out there that are getting connected to the Internet and to the networks that, we, that have that uh, gaping opportunity for us to increase the resilience of. And uh, are you done talking about quantum? Is that, is that a, do you have to, do you, oh, you're saving it for later. <laughs> you didn't say quantum, and I'm, I'm, I have no idea what to ask you. All right, uh, Alyssa from uh, GSA. My name is Elisa Fiola. Elisa. I ruined that. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We uh, talked about it yesterday. It, well, it, I, it's a part of my social media. <laughs> my Twitter handle is at it's underscore a underscore Elisa because it's Elisa. Um, my pronouns are she, they. Uh, I support TTS, which is the Technology Transformation Services, and we're under GSA uh, for the Federal Acquisition Services, and we focus on customer experience mostly. Uh, we have two lines of business where we have the clients and markets and also the solutions where we have some name brands that you all might recognize, such as login.gov, cloud.gov, data.gov, usa.gov, uh, go USA. So yeah, we are really focusing on the high impact service providers as our uh, customers, our partners that we're serving, and I'm particularly focused on uh, transitioning. Uh, the OMB currently has the Max.gov platform, and it's transitioning from OMB to TTS, and we're focusing mainly on the collaboration suite and the authentication platform, well, the authentication capability, and so that plays into zero trust because the authentication piece is uh, enabling interagency federal employees to authenticate to service providers with their uh, agency provided identity. So that way that anytime somebody from agency A has to log into a application that is internet facing that some other agency has developed, they don't have to create a whole new identity, and they're able to authenticate using that identity. So uh, it's a really fun uh, problem set to think about and to develop, and um, doing it at TTS and really put that customer experience spin on it and to uh, think about it in automation. We're focusing a lot on the open security control assessment language and um, you know, always doing things with FedRAMP in mind. That's also within our portfolio as well. Okay, the, I'm glad that you brought up the Max transition because I know it's something that's kind of been in works for several years. They had, <laughs> if you remember, the lines of business, budget formulization, form, formulation. Yeah. Um, but uh, Max is using login.gov, right or no? Uh, no. So there are two separate capabilities. There's login.gov, which is for the American people to log in and authenticate um, to as a 
uh, American person to applications, uh, say if you're applying to USA uh, jobs, so you have an identity that lives with you through uh, your life cycle as you go through life events. So that's the customer experience part of it. Max authentication part of it is for the federal employee. So uh, the path forward with that is that it will be an identity broker so that you keep your identity that you have, that you're given from your agency, and that it's a hub that is federated together. And that uh, login.gov is ideally gonna be a identity provider that is federated into that hub so folks don't have to keep creating new logins. That was good. That was really helpful because I think uh, one of the frustrations that agencies and federal employees have is if I am a GSA employee and I go to DHS to see Donald, I, don't, I can't just use my badge to get in. But Max is showing that actually we can trust each other as an example to yeah. say, hey, now if Alyssa goes to see Don, I've ruined it again. Alisa. Alisa. Hey, Lisa. See, I tried it, and I ruined it. Uh, if you go see Don, then, then you, you yep. show, hey, we can trust each other. All right. Lots to talk about there, but move to Angel. Army Software Factory. So since last time we talked, what's been going on? So we onboarded Cohort 4 uh, into the Army Software Factory. So they're going through the Tech Accelerator right now, which is amazing because we are prototyping the new Future Force design of the Army. Um, from our Zero Trust strategy, we've really been in the weeds probably since last time I saw you, Jason. I probably have worked till 11 o'clock every single night, um, and I've talked to many vendors in this room. Probably some of you I didn't return emails to uh, quite yet, <laughs> truthfully, like, sorry. Um, not personal. You know, I got budgets. You're not in my budget right yet, but maybe one day you will be. Um, we're working on a lot of security automation and how we deliver that, and uh, we partner with ECMA. So working out that security automation aspect uh, for our CI/CD pipelines so that we can get our applications into production a lot sooner. Uh, from the Army Software Factory side, we are definitely focused a lot on how we bake in zero trust as our DNA. This is something, I always say, like zero trust is a bit of a marriage because it, you have to continuously work on it for it to be productive. You can't just do it once and then it's never there. You have to continuously feed, maintain, update, make sure you're keeping up with technology. Uh, any vendors that we've put in place now, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that we're going to be with them forever. I may have just rattled some boots in the room, sorry. Um, but as the speed of technology goes, and as fast as it's moving, we have to move with it, and we're able to make those quick decisions. So uh, we've been in the weeds a lot. Uh, things are going great, and if you all don't follow the Army Software Factory on LinkedIn, you should go pull out your phones now and follow us on LinkedIn so you know what we're all about and what we're doing. It's, if you have not looked into what Cohort 4 is around the development of, of, of the training that the Army Software Factory is doing, it's, it's a fascinating example of, of really taking folks who have certain skill sets or no skill sets and bringing them in. So I'm, I'm not going to ask you about that, even though I think it's a fascinating story. But you mentioned the security automation. You're working with ECMO, which is the Enterprise Cloud Management Agency through the Army. Do you get a sense yet of, of how much more quickly are you is the software factory able to push out secure code? Have you started to measure that yet because of the automation and other? Yeah, absolutely. So as we're able to leverage industry technology, um, we're able to get applications out into production. I'd say if everyone was all hands on deck, we still have a very manual process. We could probably get an application out in a day. 
Uh, so you'd be able to come in, pick up a starter app, start coding, developing, go through your security reviews, and push into prod. An MVP, right? Like, I'm not talking anything huge major, but we can get there uh, if everyone's there. The goal is that one day you don't have to talk to a human and you're able to go into production. Um, we're starting to measure those right now, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see the measurements in between what we were doing prior and how expensive it was prior with your time of your engineers versus being able to leverage technology and some vendors uh, and implement certain tools uh, to be able to get stuff out very quickly. So right. I'll have those metrics soon. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel discussion from ATROC that I recently moderated on Zero Trust. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For today's show, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel sponsored by ATARC I recently moderated, focused on zero trust. The guests on that panel were Togai Andrews, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing at the Treasury Department, Donald Coulter, a Senior Science Advisor for Cybersecurity and the Science and Technology Director in the Homeland Security Department, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor for the Technology Transformation Service and the Federal Acquisition Service in the General Services Administration, Angel Fanouf, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Army Software Factory, and Fatoma Kalan, the Cybersecurity Evangelist for the Public Sector at Akamai. For this segment, you'll hear first from Akamai's Fatoma Kalan, and then the panelists will take audience questions. So for us, what we focus on, what specifically with me and most of my, my teammates, what we focus on is to look at our customer base and see what they are doing in, in regards to zero trust. And what we're finding out is that most of them are aware about zero trust, but they're not educated on zero trust. So the first step is really to try to give the education of what zero trust really is, because it can be misconstrued a lot of time. Most of the time, people are thinking it's a, it's a software solution, and it's a software that you can just put in and it's done. And, but no, that's not the case. It's a, it's a journey. And that journey entails a couple of things, right? Understanding the, the strategy itself of Zero Trust, and uh, Caesar has done a great job uh, in providing that type of structure in place so you can understand what that looks like with the five pillars and so on. Then the second part of that is understanding the the maturity model that exists for that, because not everyone is in the same place at any given time. It's you needing to go through a process of understanding your environment by doing discovery and knowing what you have. Then based upon that, you can be able to visualize that information to be able to do, take some actions around that. And those actions will be somewhat focusing on segmentation, possibly. Uh, uh, Togi and, and uh, uh, Lisa. Uh, both talked about identity management, right? Uh, so that, that is one area, area we're seeing a lot of our customers trying to focus on to try to get a centralized or enterprise-level um, solution so they can be able to leverage that across all the enterprise as a whole. But the second piece of that is understanding, going through a discovery to know what they have in-house because most folks don't have the knowledge of all the applications that they have, right? And knowing the service... Uh, John talked earlier on, talked about the DAS. You have the data, uh, assets, applications, and services. Um, most of the time, you have to look at the services, start from layer seven all the way down, look at the services, and see which, which assets are tied to that service. And those assets are part of an application, which then house a data, right? You wrap that into a nice bowl to be able to have 
a controlled environment to apply governance against those things. So those are the things that we're seeing across the board, but mostly education and trying to help our customer base so they can understand what zero trust really is and how they can help them through that journey. Questions from the audience? There we go. You always get the first one, don't you? Does Tom, does Tom pay you on this? All right, all right. I'm going to hold it, but you tell them who you are. Yeah, my name is Jim Payne with SecureG. It's been stated repeatedly that ZTA is as much of a cultural change as a technology change. So since culture is one of the most resistant to change that we have, I'd like to hear your panel comment on how are you affecting the cultural change that's needed before we get to the ZTA. So culture, I think, is like one of the biggest things in government that we always talk about. And it's not bad, but I think if we recognize it, we need to change it. And so one thing that I know that I particularly do is everyone that I come in contact with that's like, oh, well, what are you doing for zero trust? I'm like, are we on the same page about zero trust? Like, let's get on the same page together, right? It's an education piece that we have to give to each other, and we have to be kind and compassionate as we do that. And pretty much I'd say 99%, except for this one person who I won't mention, (laughs) There's always that one person, everyone that I've met that's like, I want to do something different, I want to change, but I don't know how. Like, let me show you what I'm doing. Let me show you what I've done, and let's go over here and talk to these folks, and they can tell you what they've done and what they've, how they've changed. And I think in the government particularly, that's not something that is really embedded in the government culture, to be like, I don't know, let me go find out. We're expected to always have the answers. And so being able to be open and say, I'm not really sure, let me call, let me phone a friend, let me phone three friends, uh, and then letting people know that it's okay to say, I just don't know the answer, and let's go find someone who knows it. Um, So I think that culture shift is happening in the government. I see it happening. I see people that I talked to two years ago that are like, I want nothing to do with the cloud. We're going to go back to servers and racks. And that's the end of time. They're now like, okay, I'm starting my cloud journey. Why don't you tell me a little bit about like how this went with your particular issue? I'm seeing it change. I think it's good. I think it's going for the better. But that's just a small perspective that I have that I'm sure some of Y'all can talk about the culture that you experience. I do think I'm a very positive person. And if you're not wanting to come on a zero trust journey, I'm going to grab you anyways, and I'm going to tug you along because you've got to get there um, to that one person in that agency that I'm working on. They're going to be along. Uh, I, it just takes time and not to give up on people and, and say that we have to do this together because we have to change for the better. Um, Lisa, I'm sure you have some knowledge on that. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, Yeah, we have a saying, too, demos, not memos. Um, The more you can show people instead of just telling them, uh, it helps. And it it definitely helps. Uh, Our administrator has a catchphrase, uh, make the damn website work. So when you show them something that actually works and it works well and it works something that they like to see, and is friendly and accessible and secure and has all the elements that um, is easy. So I think uh, culturally we have created an environment that we have come where we feel safe behind the firewall. So zero trust, we're putting things in front of the firewall and making them internet accessible. So we have to pause and think and what will this experience be and look like and uh, feel like and actually sit down and talk to people and get their experience and understand what it is that they're doing, how they're 
are using technology and what they're actually trying to accomplish. And maybe there's some controls that can be addressed in a different way than they've tra traditionally been addressed to accomplish the same means. For me, it's really around uh, that persistent awareness, creating that persistent awareness helps with that cultural shift. And it's not just zero trust, it's cybersecurity in general um, for any organization. So me, it's always having that persistent awareness, making sure that people are always aware of what that change is, whether it's around social engineering or, or zero trust. And then the second piece that I found very successful for me um, it's not focusing on the technology or the technical aspect, but actually showing the business value that help that cultural shift. And I would also just add in, just to plug in, if, when we're looking at one of the things I'm excited about in our uh, science and technology directorate is uh, a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary research. So we have a robust social sciences team, we have data analytics teams that are, and, and AI teams that are working with us in the cyber team, looking at those social aspects, those human aspects of those long-term technical uh, development so we can bake in uh, approaches that make it easier for people to adopt and integrate into their processes on, in the long term as well. So what I'm seeing out there as we go through the educational journey with the customers is to provide the why behind what is being done. Then ultimately with that why you know what the business value is as was mentioned earlier. So if they understand why the actions are being taken and they know what the business value is going to be for them then they can start to correlate that piece together and understand that this is going to help me out in the future. And they become more, a little bit more embracive in going through that journey with you. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel discussion from ATROC that I recently moderated on Zero Trust. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For today's show, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel sponsored by ATARC I recently moderated, focused on zero trust. The guests on that panel were Togai Andrews, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing at the Treasury Department, Donald Coulter, a Senior Science Advisor for Cybersecurity and the Science and Technology Director in the Homeland Security Department, Elisa Fiola, a Cybersecurity Advisor for the Technology Transformation Service and the Federal Acquisition Service in the General Services Administration, Angel Fanouf, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Army Software Factory, and Fotoma Kalan, the Cybersecurity Evangelist for the Public Sector at Akamai. For this segment, the panelists continue to take audience questions. Chris Simpkins, um, a general question in, on, the, on the topic of the future of zero trust. There's so much focus today on human users and their devices from a zero trust perspective, and we have dynamic identity and MFA and endpoint detection and response. But in Akamai actually has some really great data on this. Most of the movement of data, and, and particularly as government moves to cloud, is in automated processes, cloud microservices architectures, cl uh, hybrid cloud, um, even AI engines that are all totally automated. And in today's environment, most of the time, their identity is a static value. It's a key or a token or cert. How much focus is being placed on zero trust for those machine users, and, and the, all the regs talk about non-person entities, which is just code for machines, writ large, and I'm just curious whether that's in focus and, and how you see the future of that rolling out. 
So uh, when I worked at Kessel Run, that was our number one focus. So instead of going to the users first, we were concerned about those machines. Uh, and they did a great, we did a fantastic job when I was there of achieving that. I think many people think of zero trust as an end user journey, and they, real, they don't consider that they have to do their whole end aspect of it. Um, so for me at the Army Software Factory, it's definitely just as important, if not more important, because someone could turn around and leave tomorrow. That's great, but I'm going to have this machine that's going to run and it's producing this stuff, and it's running these things. That is very important. So at least from my perspective and what I've worked on in the past and what I'm currently working on, it's probably like right there with the end user's experience and how we manage that as well. Because once you're in, like you, you're, you get in. And if you don't have that zero trust basically on the back end, then you don't have zero trust. So what I'll say is... Um... I mentioned the fact that one of the first aspects of going through this zero trust journey is really discovery and knowing what you have. And that discovery entails not only uh, identities for individual users, but also systems as a whole. I mentioned the DAS uh, component of that. That's where you look at the segmentation of what you have in-house. If you don't know what you have, you can't visualize it to be able to create structures around it for policy base. And those are the things that a lot of organizations are struggling with at this particular time to be able to get a handle of what they have in-house because most of the time they don't know. Toga, I'm going to ask you to jump in here too because you mentioned RPA in the beginning in your short term. Yeah, you knew I remember that. How are you addressing the non-person entities because as more and more of the Bureau of Engraving Printing says, hey, we're going to automate this process, move toward an automation discuss your conversations or what you're thinking around that question that came up? It's important from the onset to your in the initial phase or planning phase of whether it's an IAM program or as large as zero trust strategy and implementation is to treat both entities or both forms of entities uh, somewhat of the same, right? And for us, our RPA or automation joining using RPA is still in its infancy. So this is a great opportunity for us to really um, apply those same principles that, that we are applying to human identities, um, to those uh, non-human identities also. But it's not just the, the automation piece, but it's also the devices, right? Now we find ourselves in a, a, a hybrid work environment where you have a, a set of the popular workforce working remotely, um, that in itself is pushing us to go towards more uh, BYOD, right? So we have to look at all, not just, um, and what we are looking at is not just our human identity, but the machine's identities, and, and ensuring that regardless of whether we own the machine or the user own the machine, we can manage the life cycle of that um, device identity itself. And that's part of what our IAM program for FY23 is kind of all geared towards. All right, another question from the audience. Tell them who you are. Hey, thanks uh, for being here today. I'm Pierce Lowry uh, with the U.S. Digital Corps over at TTS GSA. Angel, you mentioned something interesting earlier where you said, you know, your, your goal was to just bake in zero trust into your new software. And eventually to have complete automation where you didn't even need a, a human sort of in the loop. I was just wondering how the human parts of, you know, software development, of dev, DevSecOps, of those software teams, 
sort of factor into uh, the zero trust strategy uh, that you have and the rest of the folks on the panel have? Because it seems like if you have software teams who might be playing by outdated paradigms, despite the work of the security teams that, that you guys are putting in with, with zero trust, you might still be getting outdated software, vulnerable software. So um, how do you see those sorts of software development aspects and cybersecurity aspects uh, working together under this zero trust paradigm? software factory, uh, we have soldiers that are on development teams that come over into the security teams and they go back. Our relationship is really great, which I would say is not most most like the norm for security teams and like development teams. We work together really closely. I would say uh, our organization is probably about 95% soldiers and when they came into the tech accelerator, a lot of them had cyber backgrounds, so they care about security to begin with. So before security goes out and I want to roll out a change, I do interviews. So I, we follow the traditional DevSecOps practices. We do user interviews. We say, hey, we want to do this. What's the feedback on it? We run a trial. We see how it goes, and we go. Um, we're not disconnected from our software teams or from our app teams, and we get real-time user feedback on it which, again, is not the norm for most security teams or how most organizations interact with each other because usually security is very far off from the development teams in that aspect. Uh, and with our partnership with ECMA, uh, where they have a security automation division, we work directly with them to help create that so that we can leverage everything that we're doing both on the software factory side and the ECMA side so that big army can use this together. Uh, it's really a team effort and it's a team sport. And I would say from my perspective and my time working in the army, it's definitely we're, we're a big team and we're all in it together. Uh, so I have no concerns about it. I think as much as I say, one day I'd love for you to be able to come in, spin up an app, and go into production with ever speaking to a human, uh, that's a long goal, right? Like that's not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but that's the end state. And if that's ever not your end state, then I don't think we share the same vision. So we have to leverage the software development teams to see what they're, what they're experiencing along this journey. Because I can go off and create something, and then everyone's going to go around it or not going to want to use it. So the software developers are probably one of my number one priority uh, in seeing how they feel about this entire process and getting their feedback on it. So what we see typically with, uh, to your point, there's uh, usually a separation, right? And that exists all the time. So what you want to try to do and what we've seen a lot of folks do is to integrate that and make sure the underpinnings of every life cycle of the of development process inserts security. So you have orchestration tools to start from the development process, testing, dev, and rolling out all, all the processes to production. And you want to be able to insert uh, some checkpoints throughout that whole process that is security-based so that it can be in integrated in the process. Some developers are focused on, on security, some are not. And to eliminate that, those who are not focused on security have in certain security checkpoints throughout the whole process helps accelerate things for a successful implementation with security in mind at the back end. Eric Florence, I'm with uh, Veracode, and I have uh, a couple of questions. One pertains to communication, and the second in terms of the, um, the iteration. So as far as communication goes, how do you guys manage that? In terms, because I know a lot of on the private side, they do a lot of town halls and stuff like that to try to uh, bring people together. And then when you're trying to deliver zero trust to 
multiple applications as they're being delivered. Uh, some of them have automated DevSecOps pipelines. Some of them do not. How do you manage the risk and report on that in an iterative manner? Let's start with the first one, which is communication. So, for instance, uh, when you talk about Vax.gov, how are you spreading the word that, hey, you can use your federated identity now or you soon will be able to? And we can jump yeah. to the other one, too. Uh, so, yeah, so we have um, a communications team that is focused on that and um, have, like, a... Uh, communications uh, plan and pipeline and we have monthly talks with our partners so that uh, we spread the word out. We have max transition at gsa.gov so you can email us with any questions that you might have. So we try to be as accessible as possible and do Q&A sessions. So really get out there. Um, and a lot of times when TTS partners with folks, we have shared uh, team channels. And that's something that when we roll out Max Collab, there'll be more uh, ability to have interagency collaboration between two different types of um, agencies that can collaborate in a uh, space and they can communicate together. So... There is going to be that balance between communication and securing that communication and taking that risk that typically an uh, enterprise agency isn't going to open up their channels so that others outside their agency are able to do it, but that's what this whole service is meant to do. So. It's going to be a fun journey for anybody that is responsible for securing it. <laughs> so, okay, you want to jump in because you yeah, have I the think communication for me and for my experience. I see it as everyone's job, right? It's not just the external affairs or the communications team's job. Um, I ensure that my office, everyone in my office, if you are in the elevator, you need to be talking to someone about security. Cybersecurity. I said, hey, when last did you receive a phishing exercise or, or suspicious email? What was that like? Get, a, get feedback. Um, so we, we try to uh, ensure that everyone is a communicator or is responsible for communicating, especially when it comes around, when it's uh, specific to cultural change or shifting of the business process around zero trust specifically. Um, what we are communicating now to all means that we have and those elevator speeches um, is around identity, right? That's what we try to communicate across. So we want everybody to know what identity is and what identity access management is. It, and we have about, I think the team now has three sentences that speaks to an identity and access management life cycle. I know it sounds crazy, but we put all that in just three sentences and you can use that in our elevator, right? We have seven floors, so by the time you get from down in the basement up to the, to the seventh floor, you have given someone a speech on identity and access management. <laughs> okay, and we're just about to get pulled the hook, so, but your other question reminded us again, it was about the risk side, or what was your, the other half of your question? When you're, like, uh, implementing DevSecOps, you guys talked about Castle Run and being able to remove the, the manualness out of it. And so there's going to be transition. How do you manage the risk with the ones that are, 
have been automated, might be one or two, maybe five, and then you got 50 others that are still not. How do you manage the risk? So maybe, Angel, 30 seconds or less for the three minutes up the floor, down the floor. Delicately. Delicately. That's like the only way I can say delicately and working till all hours of the night because I believe in what I do. Um, I don't have a better answer besides that. And on your communication aspect, um, all the software factories in the DOD are getting together, and we started a software factory coalition where we share information with each other now. So to be able to get this, if you identify as a software factory and you haven't been at these meetings, uh, let me know. Uh, You need to be there. But we come together, we share information, and we we do it very delicately. And there's like 57 software factories? How many are there? There depends. Uh, Everyone identifies differently with the term software factory, which was a very hot topic at our last meeting, (laughs) whether they're a software factory or they have a software factory component. So... We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a panel discussion from ATARC that I recently moderated on Zero Trust. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment, you're going to hear from Sean Connolly, the TIC Program Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as we continue to hear from the ATARC event on Zero Trust. Really, the question is, what is the connection between TIC 3 and Zero Trust? And so from our office, the TIC, the TIC program office at CISA, TIC 3 is really about flexibility. It's about new architectures, about giving the agencies the ability to choose how they want to secure their environments. So with TIC 1, TIC 2, the old legacy castle and mold philosophy, there's one architecture, and they had it one way to protect the data and the services behind it. Now with TIC 3, we're coming out with a number of different architectures to help agencies understand and uh, support how they want to transform their environments today. I think one thing that maybe people thought was our TIC office had the ability to force agencies to move away from the traditional TICs and force agencies to move to the cloud. No, we only we produce the guidance. It's up to agencies to adopt how they feel best is right. So you heard John Kinderbog earlier talk about how zero trust is about inspection, how zero trust is about interrogation. So with TIC 3, with these use cases that we have coming out, now we can move that ability to inspect the data closer to where the data is. Go all the way back to Jericho form about 20 years ago, and it says it's easier to protect data the closer you get security to it. I think that's what we've been trying to do with these use cases, is move the security closer to the data. Another thing John talked about was the protect surface. How do you protect something? Again, I think with the way we've provided our guidance, we provide the ability for agencies to choose how they want to protect their environments. In our use cases, we have these low trust zones, these medium trust zones, these high trust zones. And these are really just illustrations to help agencies as they build out and secure these environments. So I mentioned these use cases. Uh, we released a traditional tick use case uh, about three years ago. That was the first one. They had to reset the whole program. We reset the use cases. That one really had to focus on the network pillar. Then over the last couple years, we've released a uh, branch office, remote user use case. That really introduced a number of capabilities that are more for the data and the device pillar. And now with a draft cloud tick case that released last month, you're starting to see that, that final complement where the, the cloud use case supports uh, services, the application pillar, and identity. So between these use cases now, you can see how it complements the five pillars in the zero trust maturity model. Uh, how, how far have we advanced 
this is a little off script already. That's the way I roll. Uh, remember three years ago when you did that event at GSA and you kicked off the, it was the oh, yeah. 2.0. Yeah. I mean, it's been three years. How have you seen agencies progress in the three years that we've had, especially since we've had this uh, pandemic in between that last time? Evidently, once the pandemic happened, there was a great amount of interest about how to be able to support remote users. And so working through OMB, you mentioned GSA, our partners at NIST, we came out with some interim telework guidance, and that translated later into remote user guidance. Now you're starting to see, I think, just the way the momentum's happened. We could talk about uh, what OMB's releasing that zero trust strategy and the EO, of course, from last summer. That strategy had agencies responsible to submit uh, zero trust implementation plans to OMB. Then between OMB, United States Digital Services, USDS, and ourselves at CISA, we've been reviewing each of those plans from the agencies. Review plan by plan, understand what each agency needs, where the gaps they have. Then we're also looking holistically across those capabilities, across those plans, more for like what are the themes we can distill out? Where are agencies as a whole challenged? And then also, uh, we're also using this to inform our cyberstat working groups uh, through CISA. We host uh, uh, working groups about once or twice a month for agency participation. Right now, we are focused on the different pillars. Uh, these, these working groups are pretty well attended. I think the last few, we've had about 600 uh, participants in these working groups. Mostly it's, uh, it's for Fed or for their contractors. But we talk about the challenges, again, the agencies are having as they migrate to zero trust. And then on the services side, I think it's evident with what CIS has put out over the last couple of years, our new services, as agencies are migrating away from their legacy architectures. I'll start with the protective DNS program. The protective DNS, and this is critical both for the agencies to understand and for the vendors that support these agencies, <laughs> that the protective DNS service is required for agencies to meet. This comes out of the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. CISA has to provide these services, and agencies are responsible to support these services. So the protective DNS service is the transition away from the legacy Einstein 3A DNS service. This is a modern DNS service uh, built off a cloud service provider, um, is a, a DNS service provider, so it can support a much greater range of agency needs. Then we also have CLAW, AW, CLAW, Cloud Log Aggregation Warehouse. Again, as agencies are moving away from these ticks and moving their agency architectures to the cloud, now agencies can CISA can start to ingest this telemetry in new ways through this cloud ingestion point. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Sean Connolly, the TIC Program Manager at CISA, as we continue to hear more from the HRC event on Zero Trust. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.